I want to. Are we going to go stand over I, there? I am Craig okay. Jenkins, the uh, director of the Mershon Center. I'm a professor of sociology, political science, and environmental science up campus, up way up there where you came from. Um, if you're new to Ohio State and likely new to Mershon Center, I wanted to welcome you. Uh, this is an important kind of event for Mershon Center. A lot of the stuff we do is much more straight academic talk. Um, professors, et cetera, talking, <coughs> talking about their research and uh, whatever their big ideas are. But often we do have some type of dialogue, and that's what I want to enrich here, and that's the function of these kinds of events for Mershon Center, is to create some kind of sustained dialogue about policy issues. And this is an excellent place uh, and excellent topic. It's exactly the kind of topic that Mershon Center is interested in trying to further. And so I just wanted to give you some kind of a uh, well, welcome here. Um, I also tell you that there, there is a video machine. One of the things that happens, and this is actually extremely valuable both for, for people internationally and across the country, these things get posted on the Mershon Center website a week, 10 days afterwards, something like that. And it's extremely useful to people both here in the community who might want to dial in and take a look see what was said, look at it again if they saw it, or perhaps they weren't able to attend. So I just tell you that the panelists will all have, the, I guess they're going to pass the mic around and we'll, yeah, we'd love to have a portable mic, but uh, so anyway, I just tell you that and alert you to that and, and, um, and make sure that you're able to realize that's sort of the reason why the mic is, it's not so much that you can't hear them, but that the video can't hear them otherwise. So. Anyway, uh, with that, I want to turn it over uh, to the CAN coordinator here who will actually carry on. Um, I'm going to add just a sort of personal note. Um, about 10, 12 years ago, I got involved. I, I do a technical thing in social science sociology that's called event data. And event data is basically news data coded. Uh, and I study crisis essentially, and that's one of my project fields. And actually, it's interesting, one of the things that got me involved in that, and actually I sustain this involvement and interest, is what's sometimes called conflict war early warning. Uh, that, that topic and humanitarian intervention, et cetera, then comes with that as part of the larger picture. Uh, that topic turns out to be mostly actually, in fact, a question to be asked about places like Somalia that are in lots of conflict for a long time, as we all know, and perhaps are moving out, or at least we want to know that. And that's essentially the, the point, really, is that that's the way in which the academics who look at conflict dynamics and different places like Somalia might actually no. approach this. So uh, it becomes, in that sense, very relevant because it asks questions about, well, now you know the conflict is at this status. What do you do about it? What could be done about it? What's feasible and what's not. Uh, and that's the kind of questions that the uh, academics and the, and the policy people talk about. So I've had the delight a couple times of talking to people in the State Department <coughs> like, uh, about this kind of framework. So at any rate, that's my own personal little stick, and so you know something that exists. Anyway, um, anyway, I want to welcome you to Mershon Center. I hope you have an excellent conference uh, and can carry on, and maybe you'll solve the problem. Thank you much. Thank you very much, everyone. Um, 
My name is Gabriel Mohamed, and I will be moderating the uh, discussion this evening. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank the Ohio State University. The Marshall Center for International Security Studies has been very supportive of the activities and efforts of the Somali community in Ohio. In November, we hosted Ambassador Swan right here in this building, and he gave a very important speech that touched on many pertinent issues about Somalia. Today, we have a delegation from the State Department led by uh, Debbie Mara, and uh, who is the director of the East Africa Office of the uh, U.S. Department of State, and uh, Matt Petty, who is a Somalia desk officer at the State Department too. We also have uh, Abu Karadman, who is the Somalia's special envoy to the United States, who will give a speech uh, after Debbie presents uh, the, uh, her position uh, for Somalia in terms of the U.S. Uh, policy towards Somalia. Um, I would like to thank the Center for African Studies, Laura Joseph. She is a great treasure for Somalia at the Crossroads Conference. Um, the intention is to bring together some of the most brilliant minds that think about Somalia and to come up with some recommendations that have been, uh, uh, that can be applied to change the situation in Somalia. Now, before I get into the program, I want to move you all with the introduction of a very powerful young woman who is in the audience right now. She's a teacher by profession. She writes a lot. Um, for those of us who came to think and make give recommendations about Somalia, she will really incite us into thinking more. For those of us who are American policymakers, you will see tomorrow's American policymakers with a Somali color. Sindia Darman, welcome. Criticizing others is easy, and that anyone can do this, and even a child can criticize too. It is easy, and sometimes even fun to do this when you don't even have a clue. But to solve problems, to create something new, now that takes thinking and intelligence. So let's not waste time pointing fingers like we are children sitting on a fence. We are adults. Instead, we're walking around looking at who spilled the milk and who should clean it. But unless you have a time machine, there is no reason to make a scene. Grab a broom and start to sweep. Don't you see how many people who are already helping, who are so busy, who are not just standing there and watching the mess? And can't you see that it's already getting less? Don't you know that we are no longer waiting for imaginary leaders? We know that they are not coming. We know that that is only for movies and fairy tales and Superman will not come. That time has passed, 20 years, Already the milk has filled the room and dried up the floor. But can't you see how it, it is so amazing 
that so many people are sweeping and helping in Somalia, when the world said we don't know if we can help, who said that they are just terrorists and pirates, but no, we are human beings. We are mothers and fathers, sisters, daughters and brothers, grandfathers and grandmothers. The thousand graves of Somali babies were human beings. Their mothers will cry for them for the rest of their lives. While Americans have September 9-11 as their greatest tragedy, we have the famine of 2011. Thousands of graves of babies who just died from no water or food, and that's all. There's no people to arrest or fight with. It was only hunger and thirst, and that is why they died. We all mourn for their death, but we got up and we said that in their honor, we will help. The Somali refugees in Banab, who promised to share half of their food with the refugees who were in need, although they were refugees themselves. The Somali mothers who answered the cries from the ones back home. The Somali diaspora who called and wrote their government. The singer who went to speak the truth conviction for refugees in Banab. The Somali students who walked for hours in Columbus in the heat while fasting to collect money for those back home. The Somali couples who instead sent all their wedding money abroad to help those refugees back home. All the Somalis who sent millions of dollars through these money transfers that now people are saying that we can't even use. The Somali students in Africa who said that we will help. The Somali students in out of countries who said we will help. The ones in the West who said we will help. The Somali students in South America the ones in Asia, all around the world, all of these Somali students who said we will help. The Somali community leaders that used all their connections to give us a voice. The Somali teachers in Somalia who turned his school into a refuge. The Somali sheikh who turned his orphanage into a feeding center. The doctor who turned her clinic into a camp. All of the Somali women who turned their kitchens into feeding centers and all of the youth in Somalia who were always used for war, they said no more. The Somali mothers who also stood at their son's decision and said, despite the threat of death, that they will stand by their son's decision. All of these heroes back home, they are the bravest because they risked their life in the name of peace. When the world said, we don't know if we can help, but we said no, we are Somali and we will help. Not to mention all the reporters who said, instead of giving the, the microphones into the politicians, they said they will give it to the poor. All, everyone who sent all the funds every month, even though it is what, January now, they still, still are sending money. We are a nation of warriors because we are not afraid. We are always ready to rise to the challenge. We fought against every invader, and we fought to start our new lives in these new countries and we now fight for the lives of the Somali children. We are not cowards. We are ready to face any, any enemy. So stay focused and do not lose your way. We are, the the, we are a strong nation, but now we have to also try to become a strong economy that the world admires, not just a country where one man's family eats a feast. So let's start this new war and win. We are, the, we are warriors and we never back down. We have to fight this war on poverty and ignorance. And let's not lie to ourselves and say that our biggest problem is something else when we know it is just poverty. 
Our people deserve human rights, food, water, shelter, and safety. Basic problems. So don't lie and make it complicated when it isn't. Somali children shouldn't die because of poverty or be forced to join wars to get rice. We should start businesses and create in jobs and industry. And let's make use of our greatest resource, because we are the door between the East and the West. We have the longest coastline, as long as the East Coast of the United States. We have oil, fish, minerals, and so many other resources. We should be rich and not poor. There was a 16-year-old Somali boy who I sent $40 a month to, and he said that he has hope because he knows that he has one person who cares for him, and he promises that he's gonna study to become a doctor and to be a good boy. So let's help this young man and all the other children so that way they will have hope because they know that we care about them. Our children are our future, and when we take care of them, we take care of the future. So we have to honor the deaths of all the children who died in 2011. We cannot let their deaths be in vain. So thank you to all the Somali citizens who stopped waiting, and thank you to all the people in the world who are standing beside them. Because isn't it amazing that when you help yourself, suddenly others want to help you too. Thank you. Thank you very much, India. Uh, now it's an honor to call um, Debbie Malak, the director of the East Africa Office at the State Department. Debbie uh, has served in various capacities at the State Department, starting with uh, the economic video where she, uh, <coughs> I was able to Google her name, and I found that she was able to negotiate some uh, food security-related uh, legislation with European countries. And uh, later on, she moved on to the uh, Bureau of African Affairs, becoming the director of East Africa before going to Ethiopia to become the deputy chief of mission and then coming back to her current office, which is the director of East African uh, Office of the State Department. We're honored to have uh, Debbie and her team, and we look forward to hearing from her. Thank you. Okay, I have my target painted on my uh, on my back. So when <laughs> when we get to questions and answers, we can uh, I'll make sure you guys can all see it. Uh, thank you very much. Um, first, I would like to thank uh, the Ohio State University, uh, the Mershon Center, and certainly the Center for African Studies here for um, assisting and cooperating in the put in in arranging uh, this opportunity for me and for Matt. Um, and for all of you to have a conversation and a dialogue and a discussion, sometimes a very vigorous discussion and disagreement, um, perhaps over, uh, over a very important topic, which is how we all together can somehow find a way forward uh, for, for the country of Somalia uh, and bring peace and stability to a, to a country that is where, where it is long overdue. Um, so, what I would like to talk about a little bit is, uh, as you no doubt have heard, has been previewed today in some of our sessions, a little bit about the dual track policy, which I know has, uh, will, will get a lot of attention uh, both uh, from both sides. 
And then I'll talk a little bit about what we're doing as a U.S. government uh, with uh, AMISOM, what we've done on the humanitarian side, um, and where we think things are headed. And then I look forward to hearing from our, our other speaker, and then I assume we will have questions and answers. So we'll have an opportunity to have a little bit of a discussion. And I can assure you that uh, we'll be listening to everything that we hear here, and we will be taking this back. It's part of a... Uh, of, the, of the policy process is to hear and think about what we are doing here, what the people's impressions of, of what's working and what's not, and feeding all of that into the, into the system. So ultimately, let me, let me start by saying that our overall objective in Somalia really is to help find a way to, to create a, Somali, a, a, a stable Somalia that is at peace with itself, and with its neighbors. That is in everyone's interest, the people of Somalia, the people in the region, and the people of the world, um, to see that development after so many years. There are three critical considerations that guide our efforts in, in Somalia. First, we do believe that the Somalis, the, the regional actors, the states in the region, and the international community more broadly, including the international organizations like the United Nations, all need to have a role to play because the Somalis themselves, despite the fact that they need to have a, uh, they need to have a significant role in this, will need assistance from others to help them move forward. But we do believe firmly that, that the Somalis themselves must be part of the solution and part of the, of, of the, of the process. Somali, and we recognize that achieving stability in Somalia will be a very long and difficult process because any, any durable solution will have to be viewed as acceptable by the Somalis themselves. The strategic framework, as you know, for our overall stra strategy towards Somalia is our dual track policy. Let me explain briefly what, in our view, the dual track policy is. Um, and then we'll move on from there. Track one, through political, financial, and development assistance to the transitional federal government, seeks to build the institutional foundation for a durable, responsive, central Somali government. Our ongoing support for the African Union mission in Somalia, or AMISOM, aims to improve the security situation and thereby create some degree of political space where stabilization efforts and political progress can take place because it's very difficult to build any kind of stability if you don't have security. I think we would all agree that that's a critical component. AMISOM has supported the transitional federal government by taking control of nearly all of Mogadishu over the last over the last year, and that is progress. There's still much more to be done, and the, situ the security situation in Mogadishu is, is, not, is not perhaps ideal or where we would like it to be, but it's definitely better than where it was a year ago. Um, so we have to keep that in perspective. In track two, we support Somali entities that share our vision for Somalia. We will support clan-based groupings, regional entities, 
um, and in some instances non-TFG political movements that reject extremism and that are really ready to work towards stability and security. Among our efforts on track one, we work with the transitional federal government uh, to help rebuild the security sector. That includes not just, the, not, not just the creation of a national security force, but to look at policing efforts. Because again, not just, and not just in, in uh, Mogadishu, but ultimately out in the regions as well, um, you, need, you need to have that, those security forces, police, to, to ensure that people in, in towns and villages have security themselves. We have begun several projects um, also in Somaliland and Puntland through our Transition Initiatives for Stabilization Program, which we are looking, uh, we are looking to also expand um, into other parts of Somalia as conditions permit. These projects are geared towards solving local problems and helping communities at the very basic level. They involve local governments, uh, local leaders, and civil society to help build a more self-sustaining approach to development. These TIS programs focus on things as small as cleaning up streets that have been impassable for decades um, and asking so that then businesses can move in and commerce can, can recommence. And there are several examples of this in Mogadishu where this has happened, where 20 years worth of dirt and, and rubbish that were collected were moved out, uh, cleaned up, and shops have reopened. People are moving around. There's commerce going on. Small, small entrepreneurs have opened up shops. And it's, these, it's small steps, but, but there are positive developments from this, and we need to create more of an environment where we can do more of this, uh, working together with, with, our, with local leaders, with our Somali partners. We also are, are looking at, um, at uh, programs such as what we can do in terms of local development to offer an alternative to things like piracy. Because I think we would all agree um, that the way you solve issues like terrorism and piracy uh, in Somalia or elsewhere is to get at the fundament at the root of the problem which is to develop alternatives for people so that they have the prospect uh, for a better future and have a livelihood that doesn't involve having to uh, hijack ships or take people as hostage. Small steps toward development all together built one-on-one -on -one, when run in conjunction with the development of local governments um, can help promote stability and instill um, local authorities and governance more generally with legitimacy um, in the area. The dual track does not seek to divide Somalia into pieces that can be governed by anyone with a flag and a title. Uh, we want a unified, stable Somalia at peace with itself and its neighbors, as I said at the outset. Not not a balkanized conglomeration of, of tiny states that have no prospect of being able to support themselves uh, or to provide security for their, their citizens. The finish line for dual track merges the two, goal, the two tracks that we are working as one, this stable Somalia at peace with itself. But we are not looking to try to prescribe what that state looks like in terms of the specifics of, of the institutions that, that will govern it. Um, 
yes, there are, there are proposals out there. There is the roadmap out there that set up possible ways forward. But at the end of the day, to create those structures and institutions and cement them in place, that will have to be up to the Somalis to, to, to work out among themselves what, will make most, what makes most sense. We've already begun to see, we believe we've begun to see uh, our approach on, uh, to Somalia uh, start to bear fruit. Um, we, we think that the roadmap that has been signed also offers a way forward. Again, the details are what will, will govern the process. The important thing is that there is a way mapped out that at least identifies what sorts of steps need to be taken. As how those steps are taken and how they are translated will be the critical piece as we go forward. The roadmap, we believe, was a milestone and offers a way forward. Again, there are pieces that the details have to be worked out and we have to see how much progress the political players, not just the transitional federal government, but other, other actors as well, um, move forward in meeting the requirements of that roadmap. Uh, this is a process that began as well within the context of EGAD, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, um, which, uh, which led to the Djibouti Agreement and uh, the Kampala Accord, which um, was something that, as we know, uh, was a bit unanticipated when it occurred last year, but um, did provide some additional time to help try to move uh, the pieces into place to, uh, to spur some political progress. Notably, the roadmap did bring together the TFG with some of the regional authorities. There is still more that needs to be done in this regard, and we've had this conversation with our colleagues in, in Mogadishu and, other rep and the representatives of the, uh, of the government that they need to reach out not just to those regional authorities, but to civil society groups, to women's groups, uh, to other actors who all need to be part of the process as we move forward. The December Garraway Conference provides also some, at least, some agreement on, a, on, on some principles. I understand that there is discussion about the actual content of those, those, uh, uh, those principles, uh, but it's a starting point. There was an opportunity to sit down and have that discussion. There need to be more discussions, and there need to be more and more involvement of wider and wider groups of people. We understand that uh, neither the Somalis nor the international community, with our efforts and support to the Somalis, will achieve our shared aims overnight. But one thing is clear, Half measures that prolong the political stagnation and fragmentation are not acceptable. Uh, the London conference that the, uh, that the British government will be hosting next month gives a small group of the international community and Somali actors and uh, some other countries, uh, some newcomers to the process, Turkey and others, who are interested in trying to be supportive of a process forward um, will give us a chance to evaluate uh, how things look in Somalia, where the progress is, and find out how we can identify those players who are, who are serious about pushing forward to the goal line. 
On the other hand, we do, as the United States, condemn those in the, in the transitional federal government or in other organizations or entities who are going to sacrifice this opportunity for any sort of progress uh, for personal gain. And we are going to work with, with all partners who are interested in, in taking steps to ensure that any spoilers inside the TFG or inside other uh, entities or partners in the process who try to derail the political process. Among other things, spoilers could find themselves subject, subject to things such as asset freezes and travel bans uh, under the existing security, UN Security Council resolutions. We want to show those who wish to further delay progress towards stability and security in Somalia that this is, that this is not going to be acceptable way, an acceptable way forward. Let me talk a little bit just about the security situation as it stands now, which of course, as I'm sure you are all aware, has changed significantly in the last, in the last few months uh, with the, uh, uh, the withdrawal of Al-Shabaab from Mogadishu, the entry of Kenya into, the, uh, into, the, uh, into, into southern Somalia, and most recently the Ethiopian um, incursion into uh, western Somalia. Um, we would, AMISOM itself, which is, we have been a large supporter, we the United States government, and more specifically the Department of State that, that funds a lot of the training and support for the forces that are in, fighting in AMISOM, have done a very good job. The Ugandans and the Burundian forces who are there have put themselves at risk for, uh, to, to try to, to carve out, again, some space inside, inside Mogadishu to allow a political process to take hold. Uh, we are up to about 10,000 forces in, uh, in Mogadishu. As, as you are no doubt aware, the African Union is engaged in discussions and finalizing details for how uh, Amazon might uh, enlarge itself and move to other parts of, of the country to, to try to secure territory, uh, again, to allow uh, some, to develop some security and safety for the, the citizens in those areas which will also then, we hope, allow uh, delivery of humanitarian assistance, which has been difficult into some parts of the country over the last year. Uh, on the humanitarian side, uh, we, as the United States, were the largest responder to the, to the appeal um, as a result of the famine and the drought in the Horn of Africa, more generally and specifically to Somalia. Um, the United States government gave over $200 million to um, provide humanitarian assistance to Somalia alone, uh, $700 million for the Horn of Africa. Some of that is also money for, for Somali refugees in the Dab camp, uh, so it's a large amount of money. But we are also focused on looking at how we move out of the transition from emergency assistance to longer-term stability on the, on the livelihood side. Um, but we also need that security and safety and uh, stability piece in order to, to pursue those kinds of programs uh, more robustly. So we all understand that providing humanitarian assistance year on year is not the way forward. Uh, no one wants to live like that. They want the opportunity to have a livelihood, to have schools for their children, and to have opportunities uh, for education and uh, and jobs. 
But nonetheless, unfortunately, there, you know, a humanitarian crisis is a, is a factor in the, in the Horn of Africa. So we, are, we, are, we believe that despite, uh, the, despite the criticisms that have um, appeared recently, that in fact we as the United States, that our response was about as robust as it could have been. Um, given the constraints um, on, uh, uh, on the ability to deliver assistance into some parts of, of the country. Um, we continue to be committed to providing additional assistance over the course uh, of the year and as the emergency uh, continues. Before I finish, um, I just would like to give you a charge and a chance to make a difference in the ongoing crisis. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to stop there. I think we'll, we'll wait. That just presages what we might discuss in uh, some of our questions. So uh, I think I'll stop there, and uh, I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Debbie, for the insights. Uh, now I would like to call to the podium Mr. Abukar Arman, Somalia's special envoy to the United States. Abukar is not just a representative of Somalia, but an advocate and an activist for the Somalia cause. Every respect that can be imagined, from the local to the national, to the international level. And welcome, Abukar. First, let me greet you with the Abrahamic greeting, peace. Assalamu uh, alaikum. Peace be unto you. I see a lot of familiar faces, some local, some I haven't seen for a while, and some from out of town. Uh, do I need that? I'm getting signals. Do I need this? Yes. Yeah, you need it. No. Oh. Yes. Please. <laughs> So uh, first, I would like to acknowledge uh, the words that were said by Cynthia, which is very inspiring. I'm grateful. It reminds me of, uh, it fills my heart with hope that the next generation is going to be our future leaders and the people that will really pull our country out of its current misery. Um, <clears throat> Having said that, I want to start by saying two things. In every complex issue, and this one is certainly qualified as a complex issue, including our relationship, U.S.-Somali relationship, two things are very crucial. One is the context information provided. The other one is the perception that people have. In this case, I want to provide you some context so we will all be on the same page as far as the relationship is concerned. And then the perception from our, in our case, depending where one stands, there are a lot of supporters for the U.S. policy towards Somalia, and there are a lot who are against it. And then you will be the judge. <laughs> because now diplomacy has changed. Diplomacy is now 
in the marketplace of ideas. People are debating differently, not only behind the closed doors where people can talk about their differences, but they're bringing it out there where people can participate and can make a difference and can correct others where they're wrong. Hopefully in that process, we reach a win-win situation for both countries. Now, starting with the context, Somalis are indebted to the U.S. in every aspect. In 1992, everyone in the world knows what happened. Operation Restore Hope. Everyone talks about it, from the young to the old, those who lived through it, those who have heard about it. Then after that, of course, the tragedy of Black Hawk Down in 1993. And then after that, in 1994, U.S. left Somalia. And it was left to its own. And all the affairs, as far as U.S. was concerned, and the international community in general, was outsourced to our neighbor, Ethiopia. And then came 2006, the rise of the Islamic Courts Union. It was a popular, it had a popular support because it really gave people hope. And it got rid of the warlords. Despite all that, the popularity that it had, it was misread primarily because it was born, that movement was born at a time of paranoia. International paranoia, not only in the US, but everywhere. Extremism, everyone was expecting these were the worst thing to happen. So getting rid of these guys would be the best thing to do. And then from that, of course, was born, what I referred to was in one of my previous articles before my position, Operation Dangbiro. The CIA's operation in Somalia, partnering with the hated warlords in order to capture these Islamists who are extremists. And we know the rest of this story because these guys were turning in individuals from minority communities to get $150,000 that was paid to them by the CIA. That was not seen favorably. Yet still, America was riding high on the popularity among other nations. A good friend that was there to assist on the humanitarian and every front that uh, Dr. Malak just spoke of. After that, of course, came the Ethiopian occupation. The end of 2006, U.S. lent tacit support to that movement. Although there was a difference of opinion within the administration itself, the end, at the end, there was a support, U.S. support, to that invasion. And TFG was supported through that process. So the U.S. was seen siding with the wrong people. Siding with the wrong people. 
Then came the dual track policy that Dr. Malak just spoke of. The dual track policy, I belong to the ones that are critical of that policy because I do believe that it's neither good for the U.S. nor it is good for Somalia. Why do I say that? Well, let me just go through a few points here. Number one is, first of all, it undermines the, the central government, the importance of the central government. And when you have a tribal society and you provide an opportunity, the mightiest nation on the face of the earth is going to engage them at any level, at the clan level. Anyone who has studied the clan system would tell you there is no end to that process. It goes to the lowest common denominator. Those who are on the same side now are going to turn into 10 different people afterwards. And the dual track, of course, provided an opportunity for each of those people who were either speaking in the name of the clan or region or whatever coverage or camouflage it's given to come to the table as a stakeholder. And that's where the problem starts. Currently, Somalia has roughly, it depends on who you ask, some would say higher 20s, the others roughly about 40 president. I lost count roughly around 25. So either way goes. 25 presidents, or 40, depending which one you believe, all of them claim to have their own foreign policy, their own defense policy, their own monetary policy. They have ministers for each of those. Some say they are with the central government, some are against it. And the State Department welcomes them as a legitimate stakeholders. Today we have 40 or 25. Tomorrow we will have 100 of those. Now the question is, of course, when you look at it from the economic perspective, depending what theory you subscribe to, if you are in the mindset of post 9-11 or post Iraq war or what have you, where a lot of the uh, uh, private uh, securities and quick hit economic uh, and uh, companies, their interests, of course, this is the best thing that could happen. Because each of those entities can literally sign up with any company that they want right now for any deal without having to get any permission from the central government. Now, one may say, what's wrong with that? That's a win-win situation. People can come from outside, whether they are a, a, a private security company or what have you, or one of those uh, people who are in the business of economic exploitation, they can still bring success to the locals. And that's a very good argument. But just think about this. Somalia, since 1963, I think, when that report was done, and recently it was unclassified, had the second highest deposit of uranium. Imagine a local entity 
that signs with some kind of mercenary group to mine uranium in Somalia? What prevents them from creating the worst disaster, forget about the other things that they can do with the nuclear and, uh, I mean, the uranium in the market? Imagine that. That is what now is happening. Security is pigeonholed. Every group is entitled to get their own security. There is no national security. There is no even serious effort to build the 10,000 soldiers that are said uh, the TFG has. I'll give you an example. Their salary is $100 a month. We are grateful that the U.S. pays 6,100 out of those uh, total number of the soldiers. They receive $100 a month. Total of what? 6100 I mean $610,000 a month that the U.S. pays them. The rest is paid by Italy. Any one of them gets injured is taken out of that list. They don't get paid. The government has to come up with the payment. Now compare that much investment in one of the most volatile area in the world versus Iraq, Afghanistan, and all the other places where all the dollars go to. And then you question and say, how serious is this policy in building the central government and making it a, a, a viable means to provide security? And this is the conversation that we have with the state, friends can have difference of opinion, can be, still remain to be a good friend. But we sure are different. We see differently in this policy. This policy is neither good for Somalia nor is it good for the U.S. Because what you can expect, <laughs> you can expect wars, and we're just seeing the glimpses of it. In October 2010, I wrote about that article and what's to expect, and so did many in the audience. I know uh, Professor Samatri spoke about it. I know uh, Professor Weinstein spoke about it. I know Saadia, and there are so many different people that I see in this audience who spoke against this policy. And what we were warning against is really happening right now then it would be a matter of semantics if we're not getting on the same page as to how dangerous this is. It's not a bad policy, it is a dangerous policy. If you want to stabilize that region, if you want to stabilize Somalia, this is not a policy that's good. I'll leave it that and I'll answer the rest of the questions. Thank you. Over 16 years. <clears throat> and they are in the parliament with impunity. 
the national community comes for, comes them, favors them. Does that bring or signals extremism among Somali people? Thank you. One of the things that has to be accomplished in the next eight months is some sort of parliamentary reform. And in our view, that does not mean simply reducing the number of seats in the parliament. That means recreating some sort of legislative body that's going to be more representative. Um, it's a, it's a, no one has said that what we have on the ground in Somalia now is the perfect solution. I don't think any of us have a perfect way forward on all of this. We, like many of you, are feeling our way. We're trying to, to, to look at what the situation is and how to, how to best possibly move this thing forward. Um, but uh, it's a, obviously something needs to be done about the structure of the parliament and those people who inhabit the parliament. Um, but that is all part and parcel of these last few months of one of the critical, one of the critical benchmarks in our view that has to, has to, has to occur. But the details of how that's going to look and what's that, what, what that <coughs> means in terms of, of parliamentary reorganization uh, or recreation is very much in the hands of the Somalis at the moment to have those discussions. They need to talk to all the stakeholders. This gets back to the point of it not just being the, the individuals who currently populate the transitional federal institutions to have that discussion. They need to reach out. They need to, there needs to be women. There need to be women in that in that organization. Um, they need to take a page. I, I would argue that just as we've seen in many other countries, that women play a very important part in this. Uh, so all of these groups, civil society organizations, there needs to be a broader discussion about what those institutions will look like going forward. Thank you. Yeah, I think you raised a very important point. Uh, well, there are two ways I can think of in which these uh, kind of issues can be handled. One is to have a central <laughs> government that's functioning, that holds every one of those individuals and others who have committed crimes accountable. And you don't have that. I just made the case for that. And uh, the second thing is, of course, to enlist with the ICC or the Inter International Criminal Court. Very controversial case. In the last government, I mean, the last, uh, in. Uh, in the uh, government uh, of Mohammed uh, Abdullah Mohammed Farmajo, uh, the Council of Ministers debated this issue. When you want to go after them through that process, the question is, when, what period do, do you want to start? Is it 1991? Is it before that? Is it 2006? Is it when? What period? And the minute you say the period, you delve in into the most controversial issue. Why? Because the criminal court, I believe, and someone can correct me, cannot start in, in, in prosecuting cases or would not prosecute cases that are before 2002, I think, right? 2002. Oh, yes. 2002. That's what it is. Now, if you, if you start criminalizing their act, what about if I'm from... You know, and I'm from North, Hargeisa, okay? And the damage that was done unto me happened in 1988. Now all of a sudden you're going against people, what about mine? And now you have an issue. 
And if it happened to you in 1977, the same thing. So do you see where I'm going with this? So you have to have a central government that's functioning, that can hold people accountable. Otherwise, International Criminal Court is not going to do anything about it because no one is willing to say start from X year, you know. So I hope that makes sense to you. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Professor Weinstein. Yes, thank you. Uh, this is for Dr. Malik. On uh, January 13th, uh, the United States was represented at the UN Security Council meeting on Somalia by Jeffrey D. Laurentiis, the alternative representative mm -hmm. for special political affairs. I'm sure that's a high position. In any case, uh, Mr. De Laurentiis said, we will stand by Somalia's side, but we are prepared to walk away if the TFC and TFIs cannot show concrete, measurable progress by 2012. My question is, what does it mean to walk away? I think that means that we will walk away from, from the transitional federal institutions if they try to prolong themselves in... in, in so then you'll balkanize Somalia. I don't think we're going to have a productive discussion on this. Um, I mean, to be perfectly frank, you know, I can tell you what our policy is and what our position is. You clearly have a different view and a different interpretation. I think that's the beauty of the United States of America is that we can sit here and we can agree that we disagree. Um, I, we could, we'd be back and forth at this all night long on the same issue, and I just don't think that's a productive way forward. Next question. Um, uh, what is that administration doing about the young professional someone encouraging them to be part of their uh, Somali future? Or in that case, what is the government of Somalia doing to encourage young professionals in the United States to be part of the solution? I don't see anybody uh, who's communicating the, the young Somalians here. Okay. Well, let me start with what the TFG is doing. Uh, practically nothing, and for the two reasons. Number one. Can, can everybody hear? Yeah. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Uh, for, two, for two reasons. Number one is, of course, the issue of security. Security just improved, as Dr. Malik just said earlier, the last few, few months. And the other thing is resources, which is something that it's been struggling with. The TFG does not get any support, zero support practically, from the international community or anyone else, for that matter. Zero. It, it operates on a $2 million and a few pennies here and there that, that they get from the outside, and, uh, but nothing from the international community to sustain yeah, this. But you hear a lot of the other things that happens uh, through donations through uh, the the uh, UN and, and so forth and the UNDP and all of these other uh, that you hear and Amazon and all of that but not the government so it cannot provide so that's not practical 
what is happening, however, is happening in the diaspora. You have a lot of in, uh, groups that are uh, actively uh, training youth for leadership, holding various conferences, connecting them back to their country, and so many. I mean, you can find them in Facebook, you can find them on YouTube. There are a lot of videos that are available, some of the conferences that took place. Some of the organizers are in the audience also. They can say more about it. Well, we don't have formal programs, obviously, to do that, but I mean, these opportunities, we do have, I mean, I know Ambassador Swan was out here earlier, Ambassador Yamamoto, who some of you know, um, has come out to Columbus and goes to um, Minneapolis and Seattle and other places where there are Somali communities to, uh, obviously, to have this discussion, not just on policy, but to talk about how you as members of the Somali diaspora in the United States can assist or help or what opportunities might be there. But we obviously look to you for ideas as well of, of what might happen. Well, Building those Samantha, bridges. I, <coughs> I'm glad that you liked the, the, the conversation and the, some new information from both of you. But I want to leave the United States uh, in terms of the size. Uh, not that it's not important, it is important, but my uh, question would be for uh, and that is within the limits of the TFP, I think everybody here understands that the TFP doesn't have much resources, that even has some figures and agreements. But there are many things that are not contingent on dollars. I think the question that the young man has asked is a very important one. Why is it not, for example, the TFG leadership is able to bring to the world the idea of doing research? The United States could finance perhaps something like this. Uh, do a research on the Somali, the skills of the Somali diaspora. Okay? So that we have the names, their training, where they are. Yeah? So there is a a bank of information on the skills Somalis who are overseas, including the young people. And then when the moment comes, and in fact the moment has been around for it since the creation of the TFG, uh, to then think about a way of linking together the talents that are now known through the research and the uh, application for resources from donors like the United States, European Union, and, mm -hmm. and others. Huh? and then create a context in which those skills and those resources come together for Somalis who want to go back yeah, to do one-year service or two-year service or three-year service, maybe even a longer period of time. There are ideas that do not require money all the time. What is the TFG doing, that's my question now, to generate ideas? Mm. Very, very, <coughs> very, very good question. Uh, well, I think the human mind works best when there is safety, when you're not dodging bullets. And I think we just established only four months ago is when that city became safe. And we cannot expect such project to be happening right now. Is it a brilliant idea that should be pursued? Absolutely, yes. Should the government have that as a priority number one? Well, ideally, I would like to say yes, but I hate to say this. 
It's got probably another 99 one that's ahead of it. Much more serious than this. And that's the reality. So in other words, the idea is good. Can we have a private people to take over that idea and run with it and find others in the diaspora from the business community to fund it, even if the UN is not going to fund, even if these other programs that was meant to be, by the way, by design, and it was funded through donor nations, of course, to find skilled people to relocate and go back to Somalia and work. But in reality, here is one former minister sitting in the audience who happened to be the former minister of education. He can tell you when they, have, when they write a proposal that they need three people to build their capacity, how long it takes to fund those individuals with the current system that's set up through the international community. The reality is there isn't such thing. It's, I, 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 I hate to say this, but it happens after continuous request and request and request and request, and then you have one person sent to you when you requested five. Each of the offices, each of the ministries have gone through that kind of process. It was different in Puntland and in Somaliland. Now one may wonder why. And again, we go back to the dual track policy. The dual track policy was saying you have to follow what you're supposed to do. In other words, and we just heard about the, uh, the, uh, the, the roadmap, for example. I'll just give you one example. If you are resisting that, then you're a spoiler. Someone like myself who would say the parliament have, through the democratic process, decided to oust its speaker. Why cannot the parliament have that privilege? That is within its domain of authority. Why do we have to take that? EGOT and, uh, and the, uh, the, the UN uh, special representative are on record making direct threats. And we just heard similar things this evening as well. These are spoilers. When they say this was a done through a democratic process, and if that democratic process says, for example, we have ousted our uh, speaker, we should respect that. We should not really intervene in a negative way. The reason I bring this up is because it's interconnected. Remember I told you that with Puntland and Somaliland, they have consumed all the monies that was intended for those two regions. The argument was because it was safer and we could do that. And that's well and good. It is safer and I wish we could double that effort because they need more, of course. But coming back to the South, the argument was we cannot send you people because it's not safe, or the resources are not there, or you did not fill out the forms the right way, or you did not request on time, or what have you. That was the case. To some, that in, the way they interpret it is that this was a pressure being on the central government to submit, to surrender, and just say that there is no longer, for example, that state that we represent. Because oftentimes you will hear, and this, this is what I was talking about earlier when I said, by the way, open, unveiled diplomacy. So what we have is right now we're discussing what we have been discussing behind, behind the scenes, in other words. Okay? Somalia in the South Central, in quotation, South Central Somalia is still claiming statehood. It has a seat in United States, I mean United Nations. 
It has a seat in the United Nations. Well, the current policy is really fragmenting everything and not really creating a viable reconnection of that fragment, uh, fragmentation. All of these presidents that I mentioned to you, how do you reconnect them back to statehood? We don't know that, and it's not going to happen. But as long as there are people who are claiming that they represent that flag, they represent that seat, and they want to be respected as a state, those people were supposed to be pressured. Those people are spoilers. Those people, the decision that they make has to go through EGOT. It has to go through AU. Everybody has to endorse it because they're violating one agreement or another. If Puntland wants to make a decision, no questions asked. If Somaliland wants to make a, uh, any decision, no questions asked. This is where it gets, with all due respect, very schizophrenic. This is supposed to be solving a problem, not creating multiple problems. I'm not saying it was intended, but that's the reality on the ground. That is what's happening. So in answer to that, resources are limited in some cases because of the condition. In some cases, one wonders, is this some sort of pressure on the central government or not? Dr. Mir. You talked a bit about the uh, provision in American law about uh, material support for terrorism. Given the vagueness of the phrase, maybe chaos in Somalia, there's a lot of people who like to make a different thing mm -hmm. than chaos. They simply are afraid to do so or are very restrained in it. I'm not a lawyer, um, to be, to be <laughs> which should be obvious to people. Um, I'm not a lawyer, and I would not begin to try to interpret exactly how the Department of Justice interprets that phrase. Um, they, it's, a, it's been a sensitive issue. It's been an issue for, for, for us most recently with the response to the humanitarian crisis over, over the last nine months, and I know it's affected uh, a number of people in the Somali communities in the United States as they look for ways to be able to, to send assistance to, uh, to family members and relatives and, and just you know, to, to Somalis in general who are in need. Um, I think that uh, when the legislation was passed, it was written to be, to be vague um, in a way because it's very hard to, material support can encompass many, many things. But I have to be very, very careful here because if I end up, you know, as, non, as a non-lawyer interpreting some piece of legislation uh, that really falls outside of the purview of the, of the Department of State, I uh, honestly would well, create all kinds of issues. The, the law is essentially resulting in the deaths of people. Uh, it, it has been interpreted someone who's translated something and put it on the web is called materially supporting terrorism. So it's got, it, so the question should the law be there at all? It is killing people. I will certainly take that back. It's a, again, this is a is an issue that is determined by you know other parts of the U.S. government. I wish I had a better answer. Um, you know, I don't like to sit up here and have to sort of dance around. Um, but it's just way outside of my area of expertise, other than. You know, having been involved in it slightly over the past year, looking at the issue of the OFAC licensing in order to try to see where we, where or how we could, we could, we could open up those opportunities for some assistance to go in. And if uh, I, if I may, if I, can I respond oh, to sure. that? 
I, I, I think, yeah, I think Professor Mueller raised a very critical question, and I, and I wish we had someone from uh, in, uh, the uh, Department of Justice to answer this. And uh, the reason I say this is because one of the biggest problems that Somalia is facing today is, of course, al-Shabaab. And the second problem is not having the means to even find a way to deal with them aside from the violence. The violence had pushed them away from Mogadishu. But they're still there. They're still in the land. So you have to find a way to, you know, some people are trying to connect and kind of find the, and the, the people that are not really hardcore to win them back. And by engaging those people, you directly violate these laws. And, and, and now your hands are tied. There is no way that even if, if a person had a cousin who joined, for example, they cannot engage them and say, for example, have a, have a meeting and kind of advise them out of that condition or, or that situation because the laws are that stiff. So it is relevant, and I hope we find a way to... Uh, yeah. Why do you think that those people 
are not supposed to be totally, they have to be totally ignored. And you are supposed to have all the support of international community. And I read a, 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 a New York Times just a few weeks ago, and it was written that 9,000 soldiers, Somali soldiers, who have been training by this money, taxi bail, I'm one of them, so I want to ask you that question. 9,000, 8,000 of them, nobody knows where they were, with their army. So maybe they are the ones who can buy us or somewhere else. We trained them. You are supposed to be responsible of them. You, you, you in the TFT. You, you, you were supposed to handle that, that thing. And if you cannot do it, <coughs> then it's better that you say, there is no first track. <laughs> not that it's not, that the second track is not there. What's not there is, you people try to understand that we cannot handle this issue anymore. I'm sorry to say this, but you cannot think that because you are legitimate, and somebody have legitimated you, you are going to sit in there and, and, and wait that everybody else have to go under what we wanted to say. So where are those 9,000 people? And 96% of the money, I don't know where this money comes from because I am not uh, uh, into it. I'm asking this question now. 96, it was written, 96% were not accounted the budget. Why United States will allow that? I am a researcher. If I don't account what I have given for the first tranche of the money, nobody gives me the second one. Okay. <clears throat> well, let me, let me first say one, what you and I agree on. We agree on a lot more than you think we agree. <laughs> we agree on the fact that there, the, the TFG to this present day, it has a lot of faults. We agree that there has to be a reform in some of these institutions. We agree on that. Where we disagree, you and I, is that the dual track, I'm not critical of it because it engages others who should have been engaged. I'm all for that. I see them part of being Somalia and part of that country. I'm not speaking for TFG. That entity is, even if I were, is supposed to be dissolved very soon. I'm talking about that country called Somalia. Engaging them is something good engaging them to encourage them to come as a president of an entity, a village state, called whatever. That is the problem with his foreign minister, defense minister, and finance minister, and act like they are a state. When we know, forget about having a seat in the United Nations, they cannot have a seat in IGAT. They cannot. We know that, right? But they are received as president so-and-so with his flag, his finance minister, his defense minister. That is where the problem is. Not to engage them. Engage them good because it really it produced a positive results. Remember now the TFG and, and, and Puntland and now are talking, right? That's a positive result. And one can attribute to the process the positive side of of, of, the, uh, of the dual track in that case. 
or the people who are trying at least to engage these other people. So that's positive. But put that positive on one side of this scale and put the negatives on the other side of this scale and what is the result? The result is in big writing, unless one wants to ignore. And that is where you and I differ. Now, engage them, but do not engage them as a country. I'll give you one example. Right now, the TFG by design, by the way, because this took a lot of debate, they are really sitting back and not claiming a lot of what, what's within their right as a state. If they did, none of these entities would have used the telephone because the 252 is assigned to a state called Somali. And that state is represented by TFG. Passport, this is the same way. They could have said no Somali passport to any of these until they come and pressure them to do that. But they don't do that by design because they don't want to alienate. This is their people. They wanted them to be part of the process. But what is happening is now each of those entities is thinking as though it is a little country of its own. And this is legitimized by the process of engaging these people as presidents of so-and-so. I hope that explains. May I just say, I, I'm not sure where the number of 40 or 25 presidents and whatever, I know there are things that pop up on the web about I've declared myself president of some little area. Um, I have seen a few of those and we are occasionally approached by uh, those individuals who say, well, I want to come to the United States, I want to come. Um, we as, you know, <clears throat> we under our second track uh, do not go out and encourage people to become, you know, to declare themselves an independent country or a small region or whatever. We are simply trying to take, recognize the fact that there are areas where people had, who grew, for whatever reasons, grew tired of, of the continuing instability or reached some sort of political agreement, Puntland or Somaliland, and, and, and recognize that there, are, there are, is an ability to do something to help build some further stability or contribute to development in those areas. Um, had we only a single track and ignored all of those areas, which previously, in fact, was part of what the U.S. government was doing several years ago, we would have been criticized for doing that as well. So I want to make it very clear that we're not out there telling people that if you want assistance or or help from the U.S. government, or you want to be part of the process, you know, you have to be a, an independent entity. Uh, I think we, we have a, a, a higher threshold in that regard. But again, we need to engage with these, with these actors because they are part of the process as well. They must be at some point for the longer term. Um, <clears throat> well, good evening. Uh, I want to thank both of you for enlightening us tonight for a wonderful presentation. I think we uh, need to educate ourselves about the U.S. policy on Somalia as well as about what the TFG is doing. So Columbus is grateful to have this event tonight. Uh, but I want to reiterate what Abukar said earlier, that Somalis are grateful of, of the efforts of the United States in humanitarian issues, in being part and parcel of the development of Somalia. So we, we're grateful for that. I think the American, Somali community, America, uh, Columbus here is supportive of that. One area that I'd like to bring to your attention is um, the soft diplomacy, that is building the image of the United States to win the hearts and minds of the young Somali people. Mm -hmm. As a uh, Minister of Education in Somalia, one of the issues that I dealt with 
uh, during my nine months uh, stay in Somalia, is that we have schools in Somalia and colleges and universities in the midst of all this war that are kids that are graduating from high school. Mm -hmm. But there's no way for them to get colleges mm -hmm. overseas and scholarships. Mm -hmm. uh, we used to get support from Yemen. Yemen itself is now. We used to get support Probably from Libya. <laughs> Libya, you know what it's now. <laughs> Pakistan, Turkey, and Sudan. Mm -hmm. uh, Sudan gives about 200 scholarships a year, thanks to the people of Sudan. There are thousands of Somali kids who grew up in the refugee camps who are studying science and medicine and, and, and liberal arts in the college in Sudan. Mm -hmm. And Turkey, mm -hmm. this year, have taken hundreds of them. We've allowed these students, even those in the refugee camps, to take a national test. Mm -hmm. And those that have passed now are studying in mm -hmm. Turkey. My question is, when I was uh, studying in Somalia, there were used to be scholarships mm -hmm. to the United States mm -hmm. by African countries. There used to be the Afghan scholarship. I don't think it still exists mm -hmm. now. But there are others that exist that other countries are participating. Because of immigration issues, the United States is hesitant to bring youth to the United States. One issue that I raised earlier is, why not support students in refugee camps and in Somalia, mm -hmm. get educated in Africa, go to Kenyatta University, mm -hmm. go to Tanzania University, mm -hmm. go to Kampala University, so that at least we have the United States supporting those youth who are graduating from high schools, mm -hmm. get scholarships in their neighborhood, so that they can go back and support their country. Thank you. Thank you. I'll certainly take that back. It's a, I mean, education, as we all, I think, would agree, is the key to, to a better future for people. So um, I think it's a good suggestion. Yes. And, uh, we'll look into it. Uh, I, I want to come back to the dual track policy. Oh, of course. <laughs> um, but I just want to, uh, first of all, I want to say, and, I, and we said this earlier, that uh, and I think the envoy also has said earlier that what is happening, I, I don't think, was the intended mm. uh, plan. Uh, this was all unintended consequences. But when you see something is not working, it's always a good idea to revisit, and there's nothing wrong with that. When mm -hmm. things don't work, you have to try and see That's what true. went wrong so it can be corrected. Mm. But, but I just want to... to uh, and this is not only to say now you need to respond, but just to reflect on it when you leave. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> and also for everyone else to reflect. The way I see the, the dual track policy, uh, the way it's applied to Somalia, mm -hmm. it's like United States government, the administration in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. being engaged by China using dual track policy. China using dual track policy. China is communicating with Washington in one track, mm -hmm. doing everything that they think needs to be done for the United States of America. And the other track is communicating with Texas and Arizona. But they, but they I are. I just want you to think about But it. they are. <laughs> <laughs> and encouraging them. Yeah, no, I, no, I understand where you're going. And when they're communicating, they're not just communicating, but they're talking to Texas and Arizona about the national security issues of the United States of America. Mm -hmm. How would the Americans perceive that? 
I just want you to think about it. You go back. <laughs> thank you. Uh, final question, Avoca. October 2010. October, November, yeah. yeah. <laughs> then, then just, uh, 15 if you stretch, yeah. Mm. <laughs> so now, uh, I mean, at this point, is there anything that Provocative came up with from this dual-type Also, if this, if this, if this dual-type is not working well, is there any plan B? That's the question. Well, our policy is is currently a dual track policy but we obviously as we do on any policy we we gather information we try to hear from people not just here uh, but overseas as well about whether things are working or not working uh, we're in a little bit of an odd situation now because there's this deadline out there of you know August 2012 whether you're talking about the roadmap mm -hmm. or just the fact the charter itself the, the fact that there was an extension so it, it seems, you know, 12 months or I would, I, 15, I'm a little, it's really stretching it, but uh, the, you know, the 12 or 13, 14 months that, that this has been a policy is a very small time, a period of time in many ways on the, in the foreign policy world because it's very, it, particularly when you're dealing with a complex situation as we have in Somalia. So, uh, you know, to, Sometimes it takes a while to understand how things are actually working out and how things are playing out, whether it's intended or unintended consequences of, of that policy. Um, so certainly, uh, is this going to be the policy forever and forevermore? You know, I, I can't answer that question. The issue is that we will listen, we will take this information back, we will feed it into our discussions, but we also have to deal with the reality on the ground in terms of these looming deadlines that we have and is it time to shift gears and hope that we can expect in, in an even shorter period of time in six months or four months or whatever depending on when we get to August that we that there are sufficient uh, there, there's, there's sufficient uh, actions that can still be taken to try to make sure that progress is made so it's it's always calibrating that you know making changes and when is is there a need for a change if you're going to make the change what's the optimum time for making that change and how do you best do it to ensure that you don't further delay um, any any possible progress so these are all things that we take in these are opportunities for us to hear obviously your opinions and your views on on uh, on the policy so that we're not sitting in Washington in our little you know, ivory tower sort of isolated from, from where things are going. So I appreciate the opportunity um, to be here and uh, to hear from all of you. And I can assure you that I will be having a conversation with, uh, with a number of people uh, when I return to Washington and we'll feed all of this into the process.
have been a good sport. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, before we close, uh, I wanted to announce that tomorrow, uh, starting 9 a.m., we'll be at the Haggett Hall, and we'll be having the day two of the conference with very interesting and very engaging discussions on the situation in Somalia. And uh, we'll be coming up with our recommendations tomorrow. Also, I would like to announce that there is a uh, the Hill Current Journal available here.